Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. started everybody welcome if you're new welcome uh sutra study sunday uh tonight we're going to be talking about the avatamsaka sutra which is actually this sutra wow. one sutra three volumes um uh this sutra is you know obviously we could it would take a lifetime to sit here and read it it would take several more lifetimes to sit here and explain it all so I'm not doing that tonight. Um, what I am going to do is sort of introduce the basics of this sutra, where it fits into the larger picture of Buddhism. I'm going to break down a little bit of its contents, and I'm going to read one tiny little part of it. That's what I'm going to do. Uh, What's, that? What's that? The part? It was like the best part. Um, so very, very quickly... Uh, so the, it's called the Avatamsaka Sutra. <coughs> Avatamsaka translates as flower garland or flower ornament. Um, in China, this sutra became the foundation of a whole school of Buddhism, a whole separate school called Huayan. And Huayan is how you say flower garland in Chinese. And Japanese, the same two characters flower and garland are pronounced Kigong, Kigong Buddhism in Japan. So these same school of thought, but whether it's being practiced in China or Japan. Nobody knows where this sutra came from. Supposedly it's from the mouth of the Buddha. So 500 BC, northeastern India. If you don't accept that, if you don't accept that a man said all this one night in India, 500 BC, and you're going to take a more scholarly academic approach, then what we know is that around the year 200, it was actually a little bit before that, it was in the about 180 or so, a monk came from India, Central Asia, to China, and around the year 200, again, about the year 180, he translated the Avatamsaka Sutra into Chinese for the first time. And we know this. This is like solid. So this is at least 2,000 years old. At least. And claims to go back to the days of the Buddha. Okay. So just letting you know all of that. I once gave a talk here where I sort of broke down all of Buddhism in a traditional way, which is this eight schools of Buddhism. This is sort of a... Um, it's an, I, didn't, I didn't make it up necessarily. There's a Chinese tradition of dividing all of Buddhism into these eight schools. I sort of have broadened it a little bit in, as a way of thinking about Buddhism and actually even a way of thinking about religion, not just Buddhism. And so the eight schools of Buddhism, the first school is this Vinaya school, the... the the monk school, the nun school, like <clears throat> the school that is based on becoming a monk, becoming a nun, taking 250 vows, and living that way. Celibate, homeless, poverty, all of that. 
That's this first school. And I would say that this applies to any system of ethics. The Vinaya is a system of ethics. Don't, don't have sex, don't steal, don't lie, don't do all of these things. It's like the Ten Commandments. It's like all of these religions with their systems of ethics or rules. So this first foundational school of Vinaya equates to some sort of ethical system. The second school of Buddhism is this Madhyamika, the middle path. Uh, this was founded on the teachings of a guy named Nagarjuna, first century BC Buddhist philosopher. And this is the school of emptiness. And a way of thinking about this would be either theology or philosophy, right? So all religions are based on an ethic and they have a philosophy, an idea of what this, how, what is this world? What is it made out of? How does it work? How do I factor into it? So that's what this Madhyamaka school is, this uh, philosophical school of Buddhism. The third school is the Pure Land school, the devotional school. Now we're talking about devoting oneself to an icon, an image, a Buddha, a Bodhisattva, the sense of a higher power, right? And of course, most forms of religion have a form of devotion and a philosophy or worldview and an ethical system. The fourth school is based on the Lotus Sutra. I didn't really write that down. This is sometimes even just called the Lotus School. In China, it's called a Tintai. That's the actual name of the place where the school was founded. And in Japanese, they call that Tendai. But it's a whole school of Buddhism based on just the Lotus Sutra. Not the Avatamsaka Sutra, not the Pali Canon, none of that. Just the Lotus Sutra. Right? And so I would say that what this school represents in the larger context of religion is scripture, the importance of scripture. And if you remember, if you came to, I gave a, uh, a workshop or some sort of grand lecture on the Lotus Sutra. And the way that I introduced that was that the practice of Lotus Sutra Buddhism is to read the Lotus Sutra. That's it. You read it. And it's very similar to the, the uh, Christian tradition of meditation, which was to read the Bible. And the idea that the act of reading the Bible transports one to the Last Supper, to the Passion, to the Crucifixion. That's the idea in Christianity, that reading the Bible transports you there. And the idea of the Tendai Lotus School is that reading the Lotus Sutra transports your mind to that place. So... Yes, sir. Would that also, would you also categorize the Nichiren style? Absolutely. Because they don't even read the thing. They just, chant, they just chant their homage to Thank it. you very much. So in the Chinese tradition that I'm riffing on, these are the, the Pure Man school, the Tendai school. My way of seeing this is broader. And so that, yeah, this encompasses anything Lotus Sutra, which would be Nichiren as well, Sokagakai, all of these traditions. So this is the whole realm of Buddhism that's steeped in the Lotus Sutra. And to a certain degree, any kind of Buddhism that's about reading the Sutra, that that's the practice, versus being devoted to the Bodhisattva or Buddha that's in the Sutra, versus being conversant and learned in the philosophy of that Sutra, versus practicing the ethics prescribed in that sutra. Follow me? Tonight, we're talking about the Avatamsaka Sutra, which is the foundation of these schools. 
And this actually gets interesting, but this is where I say, or this is where I put this in the category of architecture. But not just architecture in terms of buildings, but like if you go to school for architecture and become an architect, you may not ever build or design a building. Architecture can mean a lot of things. Architecture is about structure, how things are built. And you could have the architecture of a computer program. You could have the architecture of a book, the architecture of the story. And so what I'm saying, and also, by the way, this architecture that comes out of this sutra spills into the world in the form of actual architecture. Temples, monasteries, stupas, giant three-dimensional mandalas in Java, things like that. And by the way, if you were here last week and you saw that beautiful, gigantic, three-dimensional mandala pyramid in Java, if you remember that, that three-dimensional mandala in Java is a three-dimensional representation of this sutra. It is the entire story of this sutra in uh, relief, like where they've sketched or etched these giant stones with the story of this, and then walled this whole giant pyramid with this story. And I'm going to tell you more about this story, uh, but it ends in enlightenment, which is at the top of that pyramid. So that's what we're going to find out about tonight. Uh, the sixth school is traditionally the Yogacara school, the mind only, Vijnapi Vijnana Matri, uh, consciousness only, experience only. And I would chop this up to phenomenology. Different than philosophy, phenomenology is the more existential view of not just what is going on out here, but what's going on in here in its relationship to out there. Phenomenology is how does the mind process all of this and have this experience? So mind only. Everybody follow me so far? Just a quick review. The seventh school is the Zen school. This is where you get an emphasis on lineages. My teacher, my teacher's teacher, my teacher's teacher's teacher, and how my lineage and my teacher go all the way back to the Buddha. And the, the, the importance of that for some people, right? That if you were just to come in here and you were to be like, who, who are you? And I'm like, I'm Michael. Who's your teacher? I don't have one. All right, I'm out of here. I, 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 if, you, if you're not coming from somebody else, uh, what good are you? There's a certain mentality, not just in Buddhism, but in all of religion, where there's a lineage, not in all forms of religion, but in many forms of religion, there's a lineage. And what comes as part of that lineage tradition is the guru, that teacher worship. So the Zen, I'm going to give a whole talk on Zen, not next week, but two weeks from now, because next week I'm going to talk about Yogacara. Uh, so if you're curious about that, two weeks from tonight I'll talk about Zen and the genesis of this idea of a lineage system, and then how that turns into guru worship. And then the eighth, which is what we talked about last week, esoteric, magic, tantric Buddhism. We jumped ahead. We jumped all the way to eight last week. So I'm going to pull it back, and we're going to talk about this Hua Yan Buddhism. Any questions about that before I get started real quick? Pretty straightforward. Again, it's just a rubric for understanding 2,500 years of Buddhist history <laughs> and like how 
How could all of that, Tibetan Buddhism, these things, Zen, how could all of that be called Buddhism? Well, that's how. And again, I didn't make it up. That's just traditionally how people have conceived of this vast tradition. Of Buddhism in particular or of any religion? Of Buddhism in particular, I, as this kind of, whoever I am, have turned it into this uh, way of thinking about aspects of religion, that all religions are based in ethics, have a philosophy, have a form of devotion based on scripture, with buildings or a sense of structure and architecture, with a phenomenological outlook, with lineages, teachers and gurus, and a certain aspect in which all religions have this little secret side to them, that little esoteric, you don't get to know about that until you know the secret handshake side, right? No. Where does um, study and and, and mm. I would say everywhere, but in order to compact it, I would put say that this is sort of the scholastic school versus like a pure land where it's not up yeah, here; it's all pure here. Land is being the one that right, and I would then in a certain way say like this architecture is about putting your body in a space if you want to get into it. I mean, we could get deeper into all of this, but this sutra is too much fun. So, <clears throat> yeah, but if you have any other questions about it, always feel free to ask. Um, so again, this pops on the world scene. Oh, yeah. I'm just curious about any kind of sense of evolution in this. So, this is, um, in terms of my thinking, this is progressive, Meaning that, in terms of understanding the progress of Buddhist development, there was this school that developed a more broad philosophical school that then branched out into this more devotional school. And it does kind of culminate, even if you put it on a timeline, it culminates with this being the last, latest development in Buddhism. This actually being one right before that, this being one before that, and so on. But I would... And I have taught this where I show all eight of these aspects in the earliest tradition, in the earliest ones, where I point out examples of Tantra. All the, I did it last week, or at some point, where I read about the, all the magical superpowers of, and that's a Theravada text. So that fits into that. You'll find uh, like the, um, the Great Discourse on Lineage, which is all about the past Buddhas. That fits right into this. Mind only is all over old school Buddhism. It just takes a little careful looking to find it. Of course, this sutra isn't present in that, but the idea of architecture, and in a way, the magical structure of sutras is what I'm talking about with this fifth school. These things are not just stories. These things are, are well-crafted well, well crafted, the way they're put together. I mean, they're designed to change your mind so that like you go into it thinking one way and by the time you're done reading, you, you actually think totally differently. So there's an architecture to these that is, that's profound. And, and again, you'll, you, you find that same architecture in the earliest sutras. The beautiful way the stories unfold, the, the logical structures, all of that. Okay. Um, you should know, gosh, there's so many things to know, but you should know, this sutra presents itself 
as bah, 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 bah. thus have I heard one time the Buddha was in the land of Magadha that's where he's from and he was in a state of purity at the sight of enlightenment having just realized true awareness the ground was solid and firm made of Vajra adorned with exquisite jewel discs and myriad precious flowers with pure clear crystals the ocean of Lakshana, the ocean of characteristics of the various colors appeared over an infinite extent. There were banners of precious stones constantly emitting shining light and producing beautiful sounds. Nets of myriad gems and garlands of exquisitely scented flowers hung all around. The finest jewels appeared spontaneously, raining inexhaustible quantities of gems and beautiful flowers all over the earth. There were rows of jeweled trees, their branches and foliage lustrous and luxuriant. By the Buddha's spiritual power, he caused all the adornments of this enlightenment site to be reflected therein. What you should know about this sutra is that <clears throat> this whole sutra supposedly takes place during the 21 days that the Buddha was sitting under this tree of enlightenment. This is before the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta. Before the turning the Dharma Wheel Sutra, the historically first sutra, this actually came first. That's the claim. It's the claim of the sutra that he was sitting on the, the side of enlightenment. And when all of this happened, um, the Huayan, Qigong tradition, they say, yeah, this is the very first thing he preached. And it was so crazy, nobody understood it. And so he, packed, he had to back it up. And was like, wow, these people are pretty dense. Back it up. All right. No self. Four noble truths. And like he gave everybody the remedial version. Because this was like the real deal. That's the story of the sutra. They, they thought that. They do. So there's like contemporary like. You should know, just while we're on it. This is, this school, this is like a heyday. This is the first translations. It kind of peaked. And then by the year 800, actually, Tantra had like, taken over the scene. So this was like the heyday of this type of Buddhism, but it still exists today. There is even in California, up, uh, up the ways, the city of 10,000 Buddhas, Master Xuan Hua, and the city of 10,000 Buddhas is basically a, a Huayan school. They don't kind of call themselves that, but they are. They're, they're currently doing a translation of this. They have been for like 50 years or however long. Um, this is the only English translation right now, but they've been working on another one. Master Xuan Hua teaches from this. They're all about it. So you should know that there's a, this is alive and well in the world, but it, it reached its peak, though, about the year 600 and then has been pretty much going like downhill since. Where is this? Somewhere near Ukiah, I think. Is it near Ukiah? Yeah. My niece is working on that translation. Oh, wow. There you go. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to be said about that organization and what they're involved in. But you should know, yeah, they're, they're into this. I, I, yeah, I was just curious, like, uh, do we have, like, writings from those times of, like, what, you know, people were thinking about it in that time? Oh, yeah, and I'm about to tell you all about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to get down to it. Uh, one other thing uh, that I, I didn't mention uh, before I started reading. The flower garland. So this is like a garland, right? 
like a flower garden with a bunch of flowers, like a flower necklace, right? The reason why this is, or one of the reasons why this is called the flower garland is because this sutra uh, is a, actually a collection of sutras. It's not unlike our heap of jewels sutra, the Maharatnakuta sutra that actually is a bunch of little sutras. And even the Lotus Sutra is actually a bunch of little sutras put together. The Lotus Sutra is a bunch of parables. This great parable, this great parable of the burning house, this one of the invisible city. And the Lotus Sutra is this beautiful stitching together of all of these parables and these little sutras into this one meta sutra. And again, when, we, when, when I do the Lotus Sutra, the, the funny thing about the Lotus Sutra is that, of course, the Buddha never, he never tells the Lotus Sutra. It's kind of a funny thing. But the Lotus Sutra, that collection, it's like the heap of jewels, and it's like this, where they were originally a bunch of little ones that at a certain point, somebody put them together, but not just haphazardly. And so this is truly like a story, but through a bunch of these little sutras that are put together like a garland, right? So rather than a heap of jewels, we have a bunch of flowers, right? And so each of these is a beautiful flower, right? So that's where that comes from. I read a little bit from the beginning. This thing is ridiculous. It is, I mean, you see how long it is, but I mean, just to introduce, I mean, you know, there's light flying everywhere. You've got long, long lists of all the bodhisattvas. And again, if, if, if you don't understand Mahayana literature and you're like, wow, that's a lot of bodhisattvas. Can we just get to it already? If you're think thinking that way, you've totally missed it because it is actually reading and thinking about the names of all these bodhisattvas. Um, their names were universally good, light of the su supreme lamp of universal virtues, lion banner of universal light, subtle light of flames of universal jewels, Banner of oceans of quality of universal sounds. These are their names. And you're, they're not meant to be skipped. They're meant to like be a visualization. Because, again, this is an experience. It's not information. That makes sense. Okay. Not to belabor, but... So, I mean, in a way, like, they, for them... We see this as, like, a thing, but it is a collection, and they were able to see it as this is a collection of a bunch of sutras, and that could be the first thing that he ever said, like... Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, than... yeah, 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 but you also got to keep in mind, like, I don't, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do want to say it. You have to keep in mind that we, and you, you know I don't ever want to put people in this category that aren't in this category. So if you're not in this category, get out. But we, Westerners or whatever, we have a certain worldview. We have a certain, certain things we value. And there's a way in which, because of our worldview and because of all of these things, we value um, a certain sense of like, uh, we have certain ways of thinking about truth and validating that truth. And so this idea of like, like, for example, this question of whether Jesus really existed or not, it's of, like, of, a, of utmost importance for a lot of people, whether that's like historically true or not. And then everybody busts out the archaeological kid and the trout of Turin and all of these things. And they, it's like, yeah, because we got to find this out. we got to find out 
if this guy Jesus really existed, because if he didn't really exist, I'm out. I don't want to have anything to do with this. But if I find out this guy really existed, I'm in. That's a certain kind of Western mindset that puts this extreme weight on, on historicity and truth that way. I'm suggesting that there was another way of thinking about this world we live in. And there was a way that in which it's like, did the, did the Buddha really say this? Well, read it and tell me. Not, you know, show me some rock fossil proof. The, pr- the proof's right here, bro. I'm not calling you, bro. The proof's right <laughs> The proof's right here. The proof's right here. And the idea is if you crack it and read it, and you're like, well, I'll be. That is the Buddha. <laughs> that, I just want to understand yeah. how they understood it. And I'm giving you the that there was not. Yeah, I'm not trying to be annoying. Yeah, and what I. true guy. I don't fucking. That's not my course, game. Of course. I know. I know. And what I mean but to say. Yeah, yeah. And what I mean to say is, is that in. I mean, certainly for myself, I can say that, you know, going back to China, second, third, fourth century, there was no discourse about whether this was a historical event or not. It was self-evidently a historical event. Okay, so there is one overarching idea in this sutra. It's a theme, it's like, it is the, the... the import of this. Yeah, it's a theme that runs throughout it. Um, and it, it's what makes this fifth school, this Huayan school, that school. Not Lotus Sutra and not mind only. It's actually, you have to understand, or you don't have to, but it is good to understand this philosophy that I'm about to drop on you before you learn about mind only. You've got to know about this before you can kind of fully conceive of this idea that all is mentally created. And so, well, now let me finish a summary real quick, and then we'll get to the meat of it. The first volume of this is a bunch of little sutras, like I said, but the first part of it is like the introduction to this sutra. All right? Um, <clears throat> the second volume of this is famous for containing a sutra called the Dasa Bhumi Sutra, the Ten Stages Sutra. So there's a concept in Mahayana Buddhism of the Ten Bhumi Stages, and they're the Ten Stages of a Bodhisattva. From that first, like, I want to be a Bodhisattva, like that first level, and then there's ten stages until Buddhahood. And this sutra that's about 100 pages long, this is a sutra, in volume two here, that's used to just be cruising around its own sutra. You cruised around India for a while, and this was a very popular sutra, just the ten stages. There's a great chapter in here called The Incalculable that I want to read from a little bit later that's kind of famous, so I'm going to keep that open. And then the third volume of this, this is just one sutra that used to cruise around independently. It's called the Gandavyuha Sutra, uh, the the great array, the great arraignment, or, or an arraignment, but like arrangement. Um, the idea is like with this flower theme that's through here. The the last is like the bouquet, this beautiful arrangement, and it is again. It, it's called the just this is sometimes called this guy calls it the entry into the realm of reality, 
And it's, again, this is all just one sutra. And it is the story of a monk named Sudhana who goes and studies with 52 masters. And the first 10 or so are kind of like just sages of India. And then he gets into the bodhisattvas. And then he starts getting into the Buddhas. And then he finally goes before uh, Vairochana. So this sutra is also famous and well-known for introducing this character called Vairochana, the Sun Buddha. And so Vairochana is mentioned throughout the sutra. He's kind of a thread that runs through it. And then Sudhana's journey is to, it's not really to meet Vairochana so much as to become Vairochana. Because Vairochana is this notion of, uh, in Buddhism, if you're ever looking for something that gets close to the concept of God, like supreme being, it's Vairochana. Vairochana is like the Buddha who is in the center of the universe meditating, and this is his dream. There, it's, it gets tricky, and I, I don't want to get too into Vairochana because eventually Vairochana becomes huge in the tantric movement, and in many ways, tantric Buddhism is all about Vairochana. But he's introduced here, and Sodhana goes before all these teachers and all the masters until eventually he arrives at the peak of this mandala. That's the last volume of this. Wait, did you say that this world is Vairochana's dream? The whole trichiliocosm, everything. Yeah, I mean, it's all, the idea is, is that it's sort of all manifestations of the mind of Vairochana. And so if one gets rid of or dissolves the self, lets go of, detaches from the self, the mind that one then sort of merges with this big Buddha mind is the Vairochana mind. And the way that I've described this in the past to people is if you think of, this is an analogy, and it's not, this is the analogy that, that they're going for, actually as far as I've read and understand it. Think about um, energy on this planet. Think about, oh look, there's a light bulb, bunch of light bulbs. Look at all these light bulbs, right? But you do know, conceptually, scientifically, or what have you, that the ultimate source of that light and that light bulb is the sun. The sunlight came, God knows how it got converted (laughs) into electromagnetism and all of that. But the ultimate source of that light is the sun. The idea is is that that's like a Buddha. Buddhas are in the world lighting up the place, but they ultimately are receiving their energy power from the sun, the Buddha. Everybody get that analogy, right? So you you could go off this. You could go off this light. You could read books by it. You could get enlightened by it, right? You can see because of this light, but the ultimate source of this light is the sun. And so that's like the origin, the source. Vairochana is the origin or source of all Buddha's enlightenment. Vairochana is the Dharmakaya. If you're into that Trikaya, the three bodies of the Buddha, Nirmanakaya, Sambhogakaya, Dharmakaya, that's Vairochana. But that's not what I came here to talk about. 
In some ways, this is like, it's not even what is, again, tantric Buddhism is really interested in that, like tapping into the source. This is different. And so now I want to show, share with you the, that thread, that philosophical thread that I was telling you about. That it's what makes this school this school. It's what makes this sutra this sutra is this idea. So I'm reading from a different source, but just because it's a better, well, two things. It's a good translation. And what I'm about to read from you actually isn't in this version. So Thomas Cleary, this guy that translated this, translated from a certain version of this, a certain Chinese version of it, that didn't have these two sections, these little sections. So I'm reading from this. But they still come from the sutra. Make sense? I just like to be exact, you know. Okay. So I think I'll read this one first. Okay. So, good son. There is no living being whatsoever in this in the mass of living beings in this whole universe who is not pervaded by the whole knowledge of the Tathagata, the Buddha. Yet, because of our grasping at preconceived notions, we are not able to discern this knowledge of the Tathagata. But if we abandon our grasping at such notions, the knowledge of the all-knowing, the knowledge of the self-made, is manifested unattached and unhindered. O son of the conqueror, son of the Buddha, It is as if there were an immense canvas the size of the 3,000-fold, multi-thousand-fold world system, right? The tri-sahasra, maha-sahasra, lokadatu, right? The trichiliocosm. And so we have a canvas that is the entire size of a 3,000-fold world system. And on this immense canvas, imagine one were to paint the 3,000-fold, multi-thousand-fold world system in its entirety. The great earthly plane would be painted to the measure of the great earthly plane. The 2,000-fold world system, so not the whole big 3,000, but just the two great thousand-fold world, The 2,000-fold world system would be drawn to the measure of the 2,000-fold world system. The single 1,000-fold world system would be to that 1,000-fold measure. The plane of the four continents would be measured to that plane of the four continents on the great canvas. The great ocean would measure the great ocean. Jambudvipa continent would measure Jambudvipa continent. Purvavidaya continent would measure the Purvavidaya continent. Godavari continent, measured the same as the Godavari continent. Uttarakuru, same as Uttarakuru. The great mountain Sumaru would be drawn to the exact same measure as the great mount Sumaru. The abodes of the gods on earth would be drawn to the exact measure of the abodes of the gods on earth. The abodes of the gods in the realm of desire, the abodes of the realm of the gods of form, and the realms of the gods of the formless realm would also be drawn in equal measure. And this immense canvas would correspond in exact detail and proportions to the actual 3,000, multi-thousand-fold world system. 
Furthermore, this immense canvas would be folded and folded again and folded again until it was folded into a single atomic particle of dust. And in the same way that this immense canvas was folded into a single atomic particle of dust, similar immense canvases would be enclosed in every single atomic particle of dust in the universe. Now, a certain person would appear, knowing, alert, discerning, intelligent, and endowed with the analytical faculty necessary for comprehending the nature of this reality. And this person would have purified his divine eye perfectly so that it was most lucid. And with that divine eye, this person would look with discernment at a particle of dust and perceive that although this immense canvas is present in its entirety here in this minute atomic particle of dust, this is of no avail to any living being. Thus it would occur to him, if I could only break open this particle of dust by means of the force and strength of my energy and turn this immense canvas into a support and sustenance for the entire world. Producing the force and strength of his energy, he would break open that particle of dust with a minute vajra and would turn the immense canvas into a support and sustenance for the entire world in accordance with his original intention. And as he had done with this particle of dust, he would do so with every other particle of dust. In the same way, O son of the Jinnah, the knowledge of the Tathagata, the measureless knowledge, the knowledge that supports and sustains living beings, in its entirety pervades every instant of thought in the mind of all living beings. And every single series of thoughts in the mind of every living being. Oh, sorry. And every single series of thoughts in the mind of every living being is manifested to the measure of the knowledge of the Tathagata. Yet childish beings, bound by their grasping at notions, do not know this, do not discern this, do not experience this, do not perceive directly this knowledge of the Tathagatas. Therefore, the Tathagata, looking at the abodes of all living beings in the Dharmadatu, with his unhindered and unattached Tathagata knowledge, reflects with astonishment. Alas, these living beings fail to discern the knowledge of the Tathagata as it is. Yet the knowledge of the Tathagata pervades all of them. If only I could remove all of the fetters which these beings have fashioned with notions by instructing them with a noble instruction on the path so that once they have undone the great knot of notions using the power that arises from the noble path, they may themselves come to recognize the knowledge of the Tathagata and become equals of the Tathagata. By means of the Tathagata's instruction on the path, living beings undo the fetters formed by notions. And when the fetters formed by notions are cast aside, there remains this measureless knowledge of the Tathagata, the support and sustenance for the entire world. Reactions? Everybody got it? The visualization? Yes. Giant canvas. Whole world is painted in exact detail on that canvas. 
folded and stuffed into every little particle of dust. Origami? You, it would be serious origami. <laughs> yeah. that open is like removing the things that keep us from seeing the Tathagata? Yes, yeah. absolutely. There's a lot going on in this, of course. So this idea that's articulated in this, this idea of the entire Trisahasra Mahasahasra, Lokadatu, the 3,000 multi-thousand-fold universe that whole thing being stuffed into every atom, every, not even atom, every little mote of dust. But every little mote of dust is another whole phenomenon. Would you care to elaborate on that? <laughs> <laughs> but yes. Like an endless hollow mirror regression thing. And yes, this is what we want tonight to like try to get. So what, so I just, I want to introduce you to some ideas. What is being discussed in this little thing I just read? And the theme of this sutra is what's called the interpenetration of all dharmas. And the idea of the interpenetration of all dharmas is that one really, really needs to understand the philosophy of the Madhyamaka, the, this middle path, in particular this idea of emptiness. This, you really need to understand dependent origination, which means everything's empty, right? That's the formula. Because of dependent origination, everything is therefore empty, right? But the idea is, is that from just you know, the second school, we're way back here, from just that school of dependent origination, the idea is, is that for this, in my mind, to be conceived of as a chair, for this to be a chair, that notion, that very notion of chair is dependent upon butts and the, the anatomy of knees bending this way and not the other way, because chairs would be totally different if our knees bent differently, right? So... That, that this is a chair is dependent on a bunch of other stuff. It is so the chair is actually dependently originated based on all this other stuff to be what it is. But in that, my butt's my butt and the chair is the chair and they're kind of like making each other be what they are. But there's still a way back in this school where the chair is the chair and the butt's the butt they're both empty and they're forming each other. Everybody following me? That's basic. That's second school basic. By the time we're here, we've been through a few, few stages, and this idea of the interpenetration of all dharmas, oh, if we, I mean, if we can get there in however long we got, it would be something, but it's an even you know, deeper idea than this idea of dependent origination and emptiness. Because what they're talking about is, oh. Is it Dharma? Is it a small d? Or, you know, you, you a small d. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What there's, when the interpenetration of all dharmas. So for those, thank you, Nora. For those that don't know, there is this notion of the capital D 
Dharma, which means capital T truth. It also just means the teachings of the Buddha. But there's this little p d dharma, sometimes plural. And this has a few different meanings in Buddhism. It could either be one of the 108 fundamental particles of this reality or principles. So uh, the four great elements and the five skandhas and the three poisons. There's this list in Buddhism of these fundamental aspects of reality, greed, hatred, delusion, earth, fire, water, air, sensations, perceptions, conditioning, and consciousness, and you know about a hundred other things. And that's all this is, is the interaction of these 108 dharmas. But there's another meaning to dharma, which is within the uh, Buddhist psycho not psych psychology, phenomenology, but in Buddhism, they say that each organ, eyes, ears, nose, each organ has a corresponding object, like eyes sense light. Ears, they don't sense light, they sense sound, right? Noses sense sense. The brain, the mind, the brain senses dharmas. That, so a dharma here is like an idea or a concept. And in this, it's, you name it, anything you could possibly think of. A rabbit horn. A rabbit horn is a dharma. It's a illogical, uh, Buddhism often talks about rabbit horns to, uh, there's a great term, I've never told you guys this term, there's a great term. called a pranyapti. A pranyapti, the Buddhism, everything is a pranyapti, but originally Buddhism talked about something like a rabbit horn. Rabbits don't have horns, right? But I can say rabbit horn, meaning I can, there's the concept, a rabbit horn. And even though in reality and logically and all of that, rabbits don't have horns, I can still say it, and then it's still an idea, right? Well, that sort of idea that isn't ever real, but it's an idea, that's called a pranyapti. And eventually Buddhism realizes that everything's a pranyapti. Everything's a rabbit horn. Everything, like a chip, is like a rabbit horn. It's a, it's a, it's a concept. Uh, dependently originated concept. Nora. I'm curious about the number of like 300 million followers. Like I, I, I don't know why this is so precise. Like I've never, is this consistent? That's my Okay, well, I can't answer the number one for a second. Yes. I, I will answer it. It's in this chapter on the incalculable, okay. actually. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> and then my comment is are they trying? I could see, like, when they're like, oh, you have this giant canvas, is for you to be like thinking even bigger than this reality because they're like, oh, it's exactly. No, that's not why mm -mm. they do that. I'm, I'm, going, I'm really trying to get us there okay. about what, yeah. Is it like everything is in everything else? Like, like, like it, every part is part of the whole, but also the whole is in every part? Yes, but there are a few different ways of thinking about what you just said. And so, I'll, I'll, so yeah, but I'm going to articulate the avatamsaka version of what you just said, mm -hmm. hopefully. Uh, 
Yes. Backtracking really quickly though. So when it says the interpenetration of all dharmas, they're referring to these ideas. Again, any idea or concept that you could possibly conceive of, whether it's a thing or an emotion or a color or a date, doesn't matter. Any and everything that you could conceive of is a dharma. And what this is, again, going to talk about is how the interpenetration of all dharmas, that any one dharma actually contains all other dharmas. And again, I'm going to try my darndest to explain how that can be. It's, it's so close. And again, we're talking about Buddhism. And, and we're talking about Mahayana Buddhism. And so all of these ideas that I've introduced in the past, they're going to be right at, you know, adjacent or tangent to this. But there's a little more. And, it, and what, I guess what I'm getting at though is that there's something that makes this school unique. And it's this really interesting idea of the interpenetration of all dharmas. And it has to do with um, the way we understand this world versus the unenlightened, normal way we understand this world, which again, well, okay. I have two, okay, I have two more, two more. So I can't, I can't not do this, so I will do it now. There is a visualization that is part of this tradition that is called Indra's Net. And if you don't know about Indra's Net, then I need to tell you. This is Indra's Net. I believe I brought in a few books about this, this tradition. These are, if you care, I'll pass them around. But this one, Huayan Buddhism, The Jeweled Net of Indra, that's what I'm about to talk about. So those are some books. So here's the visualization. Uh, for those of you who've heard this a zillion times, I apologize, but the visualization is that we're uh, going to imagine a fishing net, right? So you have this kind of broad, very broad net, right, with intersections of the ropes. Everybody follow me on this? You imagine like a fish net? Now imagine a fish net that is in the form of a sphere, and I'm going to put that sphere around us. So now we are inside of a fishnet sphere. Everybody with me in the fishnet sphere? All right, so now we're in this fishnet sphere that's all around us, and it's made of rope, and I'm gonna go up to the edge of this sphere where these ro the ropes of the net are crossing. Everybody follow me? And what I realize is that at the intersection of the nexus of all the ropes making up the net, at the intersection of each of them is a mirror-like jewel. Everywhere. So we're, now we're like inside a disco ball because <laughs> this sphere on each of the nexuses are these mirror-like you know, facets. And so you could think of an inside-out disco ball, yeah? Because a disco ball is a bunch of mirrored facets. Inside-out disco ball, right? Here's the interesting thing, interesting thing about being inside Indra's net, is that if I go up to this jewel and I look really carefully, I will notice that I can see that jewel, and that jewel, and that jewel, and that jewel, and actually if I look really carefully, because this is such a perfectly spherical net, I realize that I can see every other jewel 
in this jewel. You follow me on that? But then it gets crazy because when I start looking in this jewel and I see all the other jewels, I look a little careful, more carefully at that jewel and guess what I see? This jewel. Because this jewel is being reflected by that jewel and I'm looking at this jewel, inside this jewel. How did this jewel get inside this jewel? So, everybody following that visualization? Now, there's a few different things. One, it's trippy that this jewel contains all of the jewels, and it's even trippier that this jewel contains this jewel containing all other jewels, right? But the other very interesting thing about this visualization is that if I were to take my Vajra, my diamond Vajra, and I were to scratch this jewel, I would instantly, simultaneously scratch every other jewel. Because is not this jewel contained in all those other jewels? And if I change this jewel, have I not changed the reflection of all those other jewels? Everybody following me on that? Everybody following me on that? Because I'm about to, we're about to do it. Because <laughs> what happens is, is that we take Indra's net with all of the jewels, and I take it and I drape the world with Indra's net and realize that each of these is a jewel. Every single thing here is a dharma. Book, the concept book is a dharma. The concept page is a dharma. The concept marker, the concept bell, the concept, all of these are jewels. And this jewel contains in it all the other jewels of Indra's net. And not only that, this jewel contains all the other jewels and it contains itself. Now, how could that be? So now I've given you the canvas that's stuffed inside all particles. I've given you Indra's net of jewels, right? Which, by the way, there's a lot of people that trip out on the internet and Indra's net? <laughs> I don't. I'm too much of an etymologist to know the origins of the, of the Greek inter and the origins of Indra. And no. But, however, the internet is an amazing example of Indra's net. Because if you think about it, if I'm, a, let's say I'm a blogger, and I've got my blog post, right? And I'm up all night, right? Writing my tract. And that moment that I hit update or upload or whatever, right? The moment I do that, I instantly change the entire internet. It's not like I've just changed my part of the internet. Every terminal, every computer across the world is now changed in a different internet that has my new blog post. Now, of course, we are all always constantly affecting and changing this dynamically you know, interdependent internet. But that idea of I scratch one jewel, I scratch them all, I update my blog, I update the whole internet. All right, questions, ideas? Because we haven't done it yet. I've got a half hour to, to do it. Yeah. Scratch the jewel, you haven't literally scratched the other jewels. You scratch the reflection in the other jewels. 
Yes. And what I would suggest you think about in regard to that is that this, and actually this is, ties right into next week, but this idea of reflections is very appropriate to this Buddhist worldview where we think we're looking at objects, but we're actually looking much more at something reflective of our own mind, much more like a mirror. We mistake it for objects, but it's not quite that way. And so, I mean, just to answer your question, it's, it's not just semantic because this overarching metaphor of reflective surfaces, whether it's a pond, a mirror, what have you, and that weird ability to see, I don't want to get too into this, but that weird ability, oh no, actually, it's not, that's, that'll, that'll be helpful. That, so if you imagine I have a mirror here, right? And, and I were to hold up this mirror and it would be like, look, do you see yourself? No, you see yourself? See, everybody see themselves, right? So here's the surface of a mirror and in it we can see the chairs, the rugs, the people, the lights, everything, right? But isn't there a way, if you think about it, that this mirror is a monolithic surface? It's a reflection, and it's your mind that's going, that's a chair, that's a person, that's the rug, that's a book. This is just a solid, monolithic reflection, and it's your mind that has, is looking at it going, oh, that's, that looks like, no, okay, that's him, that looks like Jenny, that's her, that's a chair, and dividing up a monolithic image. You guys get what I'm saying here? The idea here is, is that this is a monolithic image, that my mind is going like person, person, chair, dot, 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 cut it all up. It's a monolithic whole, like the internet. <laughs> the internet is one giant, interdependent, constantly moving web of electrons, right? And it, and it appears to be a bunch of web pages and people on YouTube and all this stuff. That's what it looks like. But it's actually one giant... Oh, let me give you an example of this. So in um, the 400s... I think I see my glass. So in the 400s, mid-400s in China, there was a monk. Uh, he was the... He's not the founder, but he's basically considered the founder of the Huayan school. His name is uh, Fa. Uh, Fa Zhang. He... Fazang went before uh, it was a, an empress at that point in time in China. There was not an emperor. It was actually an empress. And he went before her to try to ultimately to try to get funding for his monastery and support for this type of Buddhism. But he wanted to explain to her what this type of Buddhism was all about. And he used two examples. One is he, he used a gold statue of a lion and then he had it melted down and turned into something else and had it melted down and turned into something else and melted down and turned into something else and kind of showed her how there's this one, one substance that could take all these different forms. And so, like, is it a lion? Is it a this or is it that? Well, it depends on the form that it's taking. So that was one example. And then the other example that he gave was that he took a Buddha statue and put it 
uh, I mean, you guys, I think I even heard somebody say this about the Hall of Mirrors, but he literally did it where he took a Buddha statue and then put a mirror, 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 and had the empress look inside and see the billions of uh, Buddhas reflecting. And that's where, those were two of his attempts to articulate this idea that I'm trying to articulate of this sort of infinitude in the singularity, right? This is like the example you gave us a while ago when we had the, the line and the squiggly line and that in the letter A is... Yes, so I have done that. And actually when I do that, <clears throat> that is very much what I'm talking about. So I do this thing where I ask everybody, what is that? Yeah. And because we've all gone to the same elementary school and have all been conditioned the same way, we see slanted lines and straight lines certain ways, meaning certain things, right? And so our conditioned mind is like, yeah, that, that's an A. Two slanted lines, horizontal line, God, it's an A. Right? Everybody following me on this? Everybody checking out your conditioned mind? Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing about your conditioned mind. So right away, everybody should be like, oh, shit. A couple slanted lines, and all of a sudden, I think it's a letter. Right? So what's going on there, right? So it's interesting. Just that is interesting, that an odd shape, right? And you think it's an A. How far could I stretch that? And this is why I love graffiti. If you guys get, ever get into graffiti, the, the degree to which they stretch, not stretch like that, but like bend letters to almost unintelligibility is magic. Anyways. <laughs> but if you see what I'm saying, that it's odd that, that we should all look at that and think letter A. But the idea of the interpenetration of all dharmas, the idea of the sutra is that when you see the two slanted lines with the horizontal line. When you see that and call that an A, you secretly have B, C, D, So there's a way, what I'm doing is giving you like a visualization here of how your mind works which is that when you see this in your mind floating around this, giving this its meaning are all 25 other letters of the alphabet. I talk about this in terms of yin and yang. In terms of the yang, the, that which is overt, obvious, clear in your face, I have said A. But in a yin way, a kind of secret, hidden, subtle mysterious way, I have actually said, just by doing this, I have actually suggested B, C, D, because you can't have this mean A without you carrying in your head all these other letters. Meaning, what that means to say is, is that when you see this, it looks more like that. These ideas are like floating around. I've taken this further to suggest that if you see this, and I would begin to call this for tonight a kind of a mosaic view of reality, right? Where the alphabet is like a mosaic. It's one thing that the mind can kind of parse into 26 
aspects, but it's a solid concept. Because again, and I've said this so many times, when you got conditioned to see this as a letter A, that process in elementary school, it wasn't like in the first grade we dealt with A. And then in second grade we did B. And then later on we got to D, E, and F, and then oh my God, graduate school for Z, right? It didn't go that way. You learned A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, you learned the whole, you learned it as a matrix, as a whole thing. See what I'm saying? And it's just now the way the mind works that then when you see this, it's like, oh yeah, it's all those other things, but there's that. So everybody follow me on this. It goes crazy though, again, if you've seen this, you already know how crazy it gets, but if you understand how all the letters of the alphabet are in each letter of the alphabet, follow that? Interpenetration of all dharmas, one dharma contains all dharmas, so this letter actually secretly contains all the other letters. And, of course, the letter B secretly contains the letter A, C, and so forth, right? But if you get that, then you have to recognize that not only by writing that, not only have I written all of that, but then, in a way, I have also then written all of their combinations. So, just by writing this, I've actually written every possible word in the English language. All of them. All of Shakespeare, right up there. All, every book, right up there. Everything. And then if you go further, what is, what is this? What is the letter A? The letter A ultimately comes from alpha from the Greek alphabet. So, you're telling me alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, all the other ones are in the letter A? Yes. And the idea is, is it doesn't matter if you never learned that. It doesn't matter, actually, because it's the origin of where these things come from. They're in there. It's language. So not only is all the Greek alphabet in there, the whole idea of language is in any one letter. So now I've got even Chinese, all the other languages in there. All the books in Chinese, even though I haven't even written a word of Chinese, it's still involved in the concept of language. And basically what starts to happen is, is it keeps going and going and going until this odd shape engulfs all dharmas. And the reason why that happens, and the reason why ultimately any one dharma could contain all dharmas, is because they are all like an alphabet. I've said this before. This is an, a letter in the alphabet of your world. So right? This is a little piece of dust. This is a little piece of dust that contains everything, right? Everybody got it. So one of the things, so I want to read to you one more thing, a beautiful thing. Uh, but before I do that, I'll talk one more example that Fadzang. Uh, Fadzang wrote a lengthy uh, commentary treatise on the Avatamsaka, and he gives a beautiful example of how to conceive of of this, how, how to conceive of this as operating like this. And what he says is, is that, you got to remember, this is a 5th century Chinese monk trying to win the favor of the empress. So he's thinking in a certain imperialistic way. So what he says is, is that 
you can imagine any dharma, any dharma. Um, let's pick a good dharma. Um, I'm running out of dharmas. You want the little? Yeah, you want the bowl. Can, okay. Candle putter. It, it doesn't. E- it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter. I'll do the bowl. Um, we saw you. So, yeah. I mean. So this is, the, this is Fadzang's thing that he described to the empress. He basically said that whatever is at the focus of your attention at any given moment, for example, the bull, what happens is, is that in the moment that the bull, as a concept and an idea, a pranyati, what have you, when you are focused on it, it is elected or crowned, to use the, the language of Fadzang, when I am looking at it, it is crowned the emperor of my mind. And all these other dharmas are its servants, and they go to hold it up to be what it is. And the moment that my attention switches to something else, this gets elected king, and everything else becomes its servants, supporting it and upholding it to be what it is. And although it is seamless throughout our lives, every moment our attention is shifting to different things, we are electing it to emperor, and everything else around it is going and being like, yeah, you got it. It's a bull. You got it. And it's just a constant shift of that. So what that looks like, though, again, in terms of this mosaic reality, is that the unenlightened Western deluded mind is in a world of objects and things and people in space and time. That's over there. We're over here. Everything's spatial and temporal, for that matter. We can, if we have time, we'll talk about time. But <laughs> spatially, we see things as distinct objects out in space. And the, to the degree to which we're good Mayamakins, we can sort of see how everything is sort of interrelated. But again, that's still that, and you're still you. And there's a way in which you have this interdependent relationship, but things are still things. This thing that Fadzan's talking about, what he's saying, though, is that this world we live in, you can, I mean, I've been trying to think of metaphors or ways to describe this, but you can think of it as a giant monolithic block. (laughs) One thing like a Rubik's Cube of some sort, and that the thing that you're paying attention to is like the thing that's the most at your attention. And everything else is sort of just conceptually standing behind it, like Fadzang said, holding it up, being like, yeah, you got it right, dude, it's a chair. Are you following me on that? It's a very different, I mean, I can't stress this enough. Western scientific worldview, cause, effect, laws of thermodynamics, all of that's over here. This avatamsaka, this is an entirely different way of seeing this world. Don't try and cram this into the scientific and be like, oh, are they talking about Heisenberg uncertainty principle and string theory? No, no, no. They're talking about the interpenetration of all dharmas. They're talking about the way our mind works and that our mind works perceptively and conceptually, meaning that we deal in concepts like books as a concept. We deal in concepts. We deal in pranyaptis. 
All right. Yes, sir. Um, just going back to the mirrors net really quick, um, you were talking about the, the mirrors the, that reflect. I mean, is, is there a chance that, I mean, that, that would only work if the observer wasn't blocking? Things? Don't think about it too rationally. Right. This is sort of taking perception as foundational rather than some other nonsense, you know, like... Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well... Your experience is the reality of all reality. And all of Buddhism takes one's personal experience as the utmost uh, 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 importance. Yeah, science is doing another whole thing. Well, science is under this whole project of trying to, like keep digging and like find out what's really going on in a way to try to find out I guess what we're missing if you think about it that way versus just accepting that one's experience is all there is sort of a thing all right this is the sutra I came to read tonight moreover son of the Buddha there is no place where the knowledge and the wisdom of the Tathagata does not abide. For all of the reasons I just described. There is not a single sentient being and no single body of a sentient being that is not endowed with the knowledge and wisdom of the Tathagata. Still, because sentient beings see things contrary to what they are, they do not know this wisdom of the Tathagata. Only when they abandon their deluded contrary views will omniscience, the knowledge that needs no teacher, the unimpeded knowledge arise within them. Son of the Buddha, it is as if there were a sutra scroll as large as this world system of 3,000 multi-thousandfold worlds. And on this scroll would be recorded all things without exceptions in this world system of 3,000-fold multi-thousand worlds. And the 2,000-fold multi-thousandfold worlds would be recorded in full detail on this scroll including all the things in the 2,000-fold, multi-thousand-fold world. And the single thousand-fold world would be recorded in full detail on this scroll, including all the things in the single thousand-fold world. And whatever is in the realm of the four guardian deities and below would be recorded in full detail on the scroll. And whatever is found on Mount Simaru would be recorded in full detail on the scroll. And whatever is in the realm of earth deities and whatever is in the realm of the deities of the realm of desire or the deities of the realm of form or the deities of the formless realm this sutra scroll, thus containing the world system of 3,000-fold, multi-thousand worlds, would be contained in a minute particle of dust. And every particle of dust in the universe would in the same way contain a copy of this sutra scroll. Now at one time, there would appear in the world a certain person who had clear penetrating wisdom and was endowed with a perfectly pure divine eye. And this person would see this sutra soul hidden inside every particle of dust, and it would occur to this person, how can this vast sutra scroll be present in every particle of dust? Yet it does not benefit sentient beings in the least. I should gather all my energy and devise a means to break open a particle of dust and let out this sutra scroll. Then it would benefit all sentient beings. Thereupon this person would find the means to break open a dust, apart, dust particle and let out the sutra scroll so that it would benefit all sentient beings. Son of a Buddha, this is, the way it, this is the way it is with the wisdom and knowledge of the Tathagata. This wisdom is without limiting characteristics and without impediments. It is present in the body of every sentient being, and yet foolish living beings 
persisting in their deluded contrary views, do not know, do not see this wisdom, and do not put their faith and trust in it. Then the Tathagata surveys all sentient beings with his unimpeded pure divine eye, and having examined them, exclaims, Isn't it strange, strange indeed, how the wisdom of the Tathagata is present in the body of every sentient being, and yet they do not know or see it? I will teach these sentient beings so that they may awaken fully in the noble path. I will free them of deluded conceptions of contrary views and from the fetters of worldly impurity. Then they will see that Tathagata's wisdom is present in their own bodies, that they are no different from a Buddha. Same idea. You see it. Same idea. It's just now it's a scroll in which all things have written out. All the same idea, right? And again, I want to emphasize this. This is unique. There are aspects of lotus the lotus sutra that talk about sort of the fullness of things and but it doesn't get to this point where they actually are like whoa it's a crazy mind game where the mind is parsing all of this out into a series of objects and things but it's actually one giant monolithic ball of meaning like an alphabet like a letter yeah questions ideas comments Yeah. Oh, um, well, it's like all, all Buddhism, all of it, Theravada, you name it, is has a giant warning against appearances. Meaning that all of Buddhism is saying, do not trust anything that comes through a screen. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm modernizing and adapting how I understand Buddhism, but they're definitely saying that if all you have is a, a pantomime, not a pantomime, a, a shadow on a wall, to use the, the platonic kind of version, but this idea of a screen, whatever's coming at you through a screen, it's a total, I don't want to say lie or perversion, it's just not real. It's not real. You know it's not real. And I don't mean like, again, not true. I mean, it's uh, electrons. That one, you know, it's funny. I was, playing, I was playing a video game recently. And I haven't played video games in a long time. And I, I really actually had to like, I thought about that. I'm still thinking about this. That it was a violent video game. And I killed somebody. And I, and I felt bad. <laughs> and then I stopped and wondered. And I was like, but wait a minute. Was that really ignorant of me? Because it's a bunch of electrons. There was no harm. There was no nothing. But it's de- it's deeper, of course. There's, there's, these things are complicated. Don't don't get me wrong. I understand that there's a deep, profound question about why would why would I feel that way, right? Obviously, I know it's not a person I killed, but I'm probably feeling bad because I'm like, Jesus Christ, this shit's in the world. This, these violent video games are in the world. This is terrible. Like that was probably where the the feeling was coming from. But I still had to catch myself that I, I was actually having a response to, like, quote, having killed someone in, in the virtual space and had to remind myself, oh, my God, I got tricked by dazzling lights. 
tricked into feeling bad about myself, actually. Funny. Anyways, but that idea of not trusting appearances or screens, that's all of Buddhism. What the, the Indra's net is kind of saying is, is that we sort of are all at the end, at our terminal and not grokking this internet that is binding us all together, I guess, in some way. Mm-hmm. Kind of. So it's not that we each have our own monolith, it's that we use a monolith. Yes, yes. Yeah, and again, if you take that analogy of the of Vairochana being like the source, and then all of this just being prim, prim, uh, uh, variations on the theme of Vairochana, sort of. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Is uh, So I was talking about that it's the Western unenlightened mind from a Buddhist perspective that understands himself in a world spatially of things and then temporally in terms of I'm here now and there was before and there will be after. And, I mean, it gets really tricky and it's a little late to, to try to get this tricky with it, but the idea is is that in this realm, the Dharmadhatu realm here in this Indra's net, these, I mean, I guess the simplest way I could say it is if, if a rabbit's horn is a pranyati, and I'm saying that for most Mahayana, everything's a pranyati, like, again, rabbit horns don't exist, but I can certainly imagine it. I can see the little bunny in his little horn, right? The past yesterday is a pranyapti. It's a concept. It's an idea you have, like a rabbit horn. I can conceive of it. You ask me about it. I have these ideas about, quote, yesterday. But from this perspective, they're talking about sort of more, I don't even want to say like all time being present, because that sort of has this notion of like the past and the future being present here in the present but this is saying no 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 thinking of something as being in the past is a discrimination of the mind so having all the past and the future being here doesn't help because I still have the notion of the past notion of the future the idea of of this would be all time being I did this once it's not going to work it's not going (laughs) to (laughs) work So, let's see. Earth, fire, and if I had a green, I don't have a green one, but earth, fire, water, air. Four great elements, right? So, here's... Comes creation. So here's the Big Bang. All right. And here we are. Okay, so here's the four great elements. 
spiraling, spiraling together to make reality. To the deluded, unenlightened mind, this happened first, then that, 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 and we are currently here. And so, if you see what I mean, like, we are currently at this formation of the four great elements. And the notion of the deluded mind is that if I wanted to somehow understand the past, I would need to sort of retrace my steps and sort of conceptually erase these events and erase and trace my steps back archaeologically, if you will, to arrive at like the Big Bang or like the beginning. Versus all time being present. This is right there. All time being present. It's all right here. If you can't see it, then you need, you're thinking you need to erase and go back, go to yesterday, day before. I would suggest, how did all of this get to be this way? Well, from the events of yesterday. So yesterday is right here. It's right here. Uh, a, a meditation... Uh, uh, is like a lot of times, I, or not a lot of times, but I have seen people do the meditation on a seed, like a, a, any kind of apple seed or whatever. And the idea is, is like imagining that seed as giant apple tree. Imagine that seed as in the, in the fruit that came from the other tree. And then this is seeing all of that present, like present, and that it's actually just a way of seeing the world. And that because of the unenlightened clinging to the self-view, we put ourselves in time and therefore kind of only see the present here, like the latest. We can only kind of see the latest. We don't have that ability to take a step back from the board and just be like, oh, it's all right here. Oh, it's all right here. All time's right here. Sort of, kind of, yeah. It falls right in with this avatamsaka stuff. And that's where we go to pure mind, where we actually, everything is from the mind. It's why, uh, it's not on the board, it's why the mind-only school is next. Because once you have this interpenetration of all dharmas and you realize, oh my God, this isn't a bunch of different things, it's all one thing that my mind's splitting into conceptual meanings, books, pages, letters, words, all of this, right? Yeah, whatever, that, that, yeah. I have one more. I want to read one more, though. Can you handle it? Yes. This is where, so this is, this is it. This is going back to the question that was posed earlier. This is a chapter called The Incalculable. At that time, the Bodhisattva, mind king, said to the Buddha, world honor one, the Buddhas always speak of incalculable, measureless, boundless, incomparable, innumerable, uncountable, unthinkable, immeasurable, unspeakable, untold numbers. What are these? The Buddha said, it's good that you asked. <laughs> yeah, he said, it's good, it's, good, it's good that you asked. Um, in order to have the beings of this world penetrate the meaning of the numbers known to the Buddhas, listen carefully and think well about this, and I'll explain it. Then the enlightened, and then the Bodhisattva mind king willingly received this teaching. The Buddha said, 10, this, I'm, this is, I, 
It's coming out of here. You, you're not going to believe me. So I just want to like show you. <laughs> Spoiler alert or what? I'm just saying. I'm a hype man. I like to hype these things up. All right. What are these numbers, Buddha? 10 to the 10th power times 10 to the 10th power equals 10 to the 20th power. 10 to the 20th power times 10 to the 20th power equals 10 to the 40th power. 10 to the 40th power times 10 to the 40th power equals 10 to the 80th power. 10 to the 80th power times 10, times 10 to the 80th power equals 10 to the power of 160. 10 to the power of 160 squared equals 10 to the power of 320. 10 to the power of 320 squared equals 10 to the power of 640. 640 squared is equal to 1,280. 1,280 squared is equal to 2,560. 2,560 squared is equal to 5,120. 10,240, 20,480, 40,960, 81,920, 163,840, 327,680, 1,311,72,000. I, I can't even do these numbers anymore. And they're squaring them. They're squaring them. These numbers are getting big, bigger, bigger, crazier. Um, I'm beyond being able to, I wouldn't even know. Trilli- if you want to take a look, I do not know how big these numbers are. And they're going. Um, Jeez uh, 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 Louise! So he's got this number. I said, "Jeez Louise." So I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight commas. Any math people? We've got. I've got twenty-four comma one nine seven comma eight eight six comma six one two comma four nine one comma two eight six comma four six two comma eight five zero comma five six zero. That as a number. That squared is ten. To the power of da 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 da. That squared is da 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 da. Now we end at this unbelievably gigantic number that all, by the way, is mathematically sound. I've had mathematicians read this and they're like, "Geez, what?" I basically I've had mathematicians look at this and be like, "When is this from?" So all that giant number squared is this ginormous number that I could write out. And then it says, this is a tangible number. That's the beginning of the sentence. That squared is an incalculable. (laughs) An incalculable to the fourth power is a measureless. (laughs) A measureless to the fourth power is boundless. A boundless to the fourth power is incomparable. An incomparable to the fourth power is innumerable. An innumerable to the fourth power is an uncount- unaccountable. An unaccountable to the fourth power is an unthinkable. An unthinkable to the fourth power is an immeasurable. An immeasurable to the fourth power is an unspeakable. <laughs> an unspeakable to the fourth power is an untold, which is unspeakably unspeakable. <laughs> an untold multiplied by itself is a square untold. That's our t-shirt. <laughs> I mean, then, then they recite it again in verse. Uh, but Why? Why? What does it mean? Yeah. What does it mean? It's like the naughty number. Well... <laughs> So on the one hand, right, on the one hand, I, I, what I love about that little 
little chapter, is that it, as, if you're into Mahayana and you read these sutras and you hear these words, unspeakable, uncountable, uncalculable, immeasurable, and you think they're superlatives, right? They're just huge, gigantic, great. And then you read a chapter like that and you kind of, for someone like myself that really studies Buddhism, it's like, I got to take a step back and rethink all this. I could go back and read all my sutras again and think, whoa, were they, did they actually have a number in mind when they said immeasurable? And it wasn't just like a lot. It was actually, no, one, like that giant number squared, squared. Yeah, it was that many bodhisattvas. That. So, okay, so there's that, that immeasurable, all these things have actual values and these guys are not messing around. There's that. There's... Uh, I want to blow your mind wide open. There's that. That it's not, it's not that they're serious. I'm telling you, like, this is an interpretation that it's not that they're serious about these numbers, but they're serious about these ideas being, like, so big. And so, yeah, we're going to give you some big-ass crazy numbers to even, like, you know, just to show you the ballpark we're in kind of a thing. And then there's options I haven't even thought of, options I don't even know about. But I just want you to know that that's, and that's, I, sh- I read two pages of, of even that little section. It goes on and on. This sutra, man, it's like, I really can't express how, first of all, it is arguably the biggest. It's arguably the longest, arguably the most, like, crazy in that way. Um, but it's just a mind scrambler. It's an utter mind scrambler with these ideas that are presented and these really what seem like very advanced ideas, this idea of like things being inside things, this kind of string theory-esque like 11 dimensions inside dimensions kind of a thing. It's like, it's pretty wild. And, and along with everything I've been saying tonight, I don't know how to read it. You read it literally, all of these things, you know. But I think the underlying philosophy of this interpenetration of all dharmas, it's, it's not figurative. They're talking about a radically different way of seeing this world in that way. Um, do we have any insights on, like, when, when, like, around the period this was written? Like, the people around the author, like, how they took this or they experienced this kind of stuff when they read it? Well, I'll... Uh, thanks for asking that. And I, I think one of the things I'll, I will share with you that like most Buddhist traditions, the primary way since day one that this sutra was dealt with or practiced was that they chanted it, they recited it <laughs> from page one to page 2000 or whatever. They would chant the whole, yeah, and they would chant that. I've Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, so the the... When I said this idea of like reading these things is like transformative, that if you're looking like for the, like, okay, when does he tell me about how to breathe? How does he tell, when does he tell me how many breaths to do? Like, this is not a meditation manual at any stretch of the imagination. This is a crazy mind journey. And, oh, I mean, there's a lot of things I could tell you about. One of the things though is that, yeah, we don't know really when or where it came from. We know again, by the year 200, it was popping in, in China. It had been translated. They had temples built to it. And that was by the year 180. So something this big doesn't just appear <laughs> overnight. And so odds are it goes back 
at least 100 years before that. So now we're well at 2,000 years old, around the year zero. And, you know, as far as the scholarly stuff on this, like I said, this is a collection of a lot of smaller sutras. There's parts of this that have been dated to go back pretty darn near close to the time of the Buddha, which really challenges a lot of the Theravadan people that like to think that Theravada is like the purest, oldest, most original, and that this stuff came way later. Like this is like way out of the box. No, it's not actually way out of the box. It's actually right in the box, right in there. So, thank you all very much, so much. And bada boom.